And uh, on top of needing to turn my microphone on, I got to ask for uh, a little bit of audience help here. Uh, I am like one of my, I don't know, uh, there were a lot of us that were at family camp this year. And uh, uh, some of y'all didn't make it out because of, uh, I imagine, farming and everything else, uh, or an allergic to camping. Uh, or you have children that need to go to children's church, in which case they should follow Jeremy, uh, the Pied Piper of Big Sandy, and head on downstairs at this time. Uh, sorry, I forgot to announce that. Um, I'm going to pray here in a second for uh, the message, uh, and, uh, but I, I do have a bit of audience participation. Everybody, hopefully, uh, got a copy of my sermon outline paper. Uh, I tried this probably eight years ago, and it went for a while, uh, and I do not currently do it. Uh, However, uh, I'm trying to do a few things different. Uh, I'm trying to polish and improve my my, uh, preaching, and and this is a personal project. I I know you're thinking, well, what could you possibly improve? But this is the goal. Uh, that was sarcasm. Uh, my daughter has pens, and she has copies of the outline. And uh, Joshua is going to see if he can follow along today with the outline and present me with one good question afterward. Uh, everybody else, um, we're going to start, hopefully this week, uh, doing a thing called the Sermon Deep Dive. I'm going to try and tighten up the messages and Um, A lot of the history and extraneous details and everything else, uh, we are going to set aside. I'm going to try and keep it mainly focused on the stuff needed for the larger point. Um, Everything else, um, we're going to have a – the current plan is just an online, you know, send me questions and I'll answer them. Or hop on with us for the conversation and we will uh, talk about it, and I can give you background, additional information that I excluded, or if you have questions, like if you want to go deeper. Um, but I, I think uh, a lot of people say, oh, I, I don't mind when you preach for 45 minutes. I love, you know, hearing more and getting deeper information, and, you know, but nobody ever says, oh, my gosh, Eric, what was that? <laughs> you realize that while you were talking, my grain sprouted in the field. Like that sermon was so long, I feel like I'm still listening to it. Nobody says that. And so um, we're going to try this as a way of doing something a little deeper, but tightening everything up. Okay? The, your part is you can take notes. You can ask questions or write down questions and give them to me. You can uh, let me know if the adjustment or this format or whatever is going to work for you. I'm going to send out a mass email for the time and maybe a link to do the uh, deep dive stuff. And that will hopefully... Uh, uh, hopefully be uh, Monday morning I get that out. So um, that is the thing. Uh, if you just want to give me immediate feedback, I appreciate that too. I'm doing my best to get better. Um, we're going to pray real quick, and then we will dive into the message. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us today. Uh, pray that you would be with me uh, um, with an unusual case of the nerves, uh, which I, I pray that you just give me some some peace and comfort as I uh, go through the text today. Um, I pray that you'd help me to be focused on your will and your heart and your uh, um, your your scriptures. 
Lord, help me to, to put out there what is uh, from you, what is pointing to Christ um, and what matters uh, most in this scripture and, and help me to step away from everything else. I pray that you'll be with the folks who are here. Help them to hear from you. Uh, help them to know you more. Help them to put aside worries and strains and frustrations and everything else, Lord. And I pray that you would uh, just help them to hear from you. Uh, not from me, but from you. Uh, in Christ's name, amen. Um, the other quick order of business I had, I have to offer a quick apology and ask for forgiveness. I did not mean to make light of your dad. I love Jim. I joke too much, and I am sorry if that was out of line. Uh, please forgive me. Uh, that is my request. Um, and I know everybody over there is really stressed out, and so it uh, was not my intent to, to be unpleasant or nasty. Um, so we are in the book of Daniel. And uh, actually, I, my intent, I broke my coffee mug on the way up. I picked this up uh, the weekend before Jeremy started working for me or for the church, not for me. He doesn't work for me. He works for the church. And I, I picked up a world best boss mug to troll him, to kind of pick on him. Not a word. He has not acknowledged it. I know he's looked at it. I saw the facial reaction. Nothing. He has learned. He has reached that level of development where he knows that if you engage picking on, it goes on forever. Um, the world's best boss mug is from The Office. Has anybody, is anybody familiar with this show? Uh, the, uh, the guy who owns it is Michael Scott. He is a terrible boss, arguably, right? Uh, he is a terrible boss, but he bought himself a world's best mug, or best boss mug. And it's sort of this running joke in the series where he you know, always has this thing. And then actually he accidentally breaks it. And he's got another one in his drawer, uh, which I think is hilarious. Um, however, I did not have a second one. Uh, I don't know if I'll pick up another one. Uh, however, if it's gifted to me, I'll know it's true. <laughs> Jeremy. Um, so, uh, uh, I know. He, I assume he goes back and listens to all the sermons. Um, why am I talking about my coffee mug? Well, I'm talking about my coffee mug because, um, like Michael Scott, everybody assumes that they're the best at what they do. Everybody assumes they're right. Am I, am I wrong? Have you ever, like, approach a situation and say, man, I, I'm awful and I should not be doing it? I mean, like, like, we all have a tendency to assume we're right no matter what. We have a tendency to assume that there's no give. We have a tendency to assume we're going to handle it better than the people around us. Um, I think it is inborn in us. And I think it comes from uh, this moment in the garden where uh, Satan says to Adam, uh, hey, if you eat of this tree, you'll be like God, right? Like that's the ultimate temptation. And that is really what all sin is. It is deciding I am God and I get to decide what's right and wrong. I get to decide what's good and bad. I get to decide how I should be treated and how I should treat others, um, all of that stuff, and actually some of, some of the scriptures, like well, all of the scriptures fly in the face of that. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, um, I think that, that organization fits well because we all sure as heck love ourselves, right? <laughs> um, when it says, uh, you know, turn the other cheek and pray for your enemies, that's harder for us because we think, but they should, you know, they're my enemies, like, 
I, it's all about me. Um, and the reality is that it's not all about me. I am not the world's best boss. Um, I'm not. Um, ultimately, God is. But we sometimes forget who's in charge in favor of us. And so we're going to dive into Daniel today. There's a lot of background I'm not going to give. Um, I'm going to let you just the short version of this. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rakshak and Benny, for those of you who uh, are reading the Message Bibles. Um, these, these guys are, uh, have been taken to um, Babylon uh, as slaves, basically, and they're living away from God in exile. And they've gone to school to learn to be um, administrators and wizards and whatever else is going on. There was no Hogwarts, I'm sorry, um, unless you're reading the message. Um, the, I'm sorry, that was awful. The, they've gone to school to learn to be Babylonian officials. And in that process, um, they've been lumped into a class of people, and those class of people um, are in trouble because in the first half of this chapter, which I broke this chapter in half on purpose, um, the king, whose name is Nebuchadnezzar, uh, bonus points for anyone who can spell it by the end of the service, um, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. And in his dream, he um, wakes up, he's terrified. And terrified after this dream, he pulls in all of the wizards and, and divinators and fortune tellers and everyone else from the ruling class, and he says to them, hey, I need you guys to interpret this dream. I'm scared. I don't think he used scared. I was troubled to, the, to my soul, or like it, it shook me. Tell me what's up. And they're like, well, just tell us the dream, and we'll interpret it, because they had books and stuff like that for doing that. And he says, no, no, no. You're going to tell me the dream, so I know you're telling me the truth. Right? And then, of course, they can't do it. Like, most of us can't tell anybody what their dreams are. Uh, Jess probably knows what I dream about every night because she knows me better than I know me. But that's about it, right? Um, so, so, we go, like, the king responds, well, tell me my dream or I'll have you all killed. And they're like, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Back it up. Because uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the world's best boss. He knows how to motivate employees, right? <laughs> do it or I'll kill you. But I feel like I should do it with my kids more often. The rooms would be cleaner after the first one. Um, the, he says, do it or I'll kill you. And they can't, and they're gathering them up to execute them. And Daniel gets word, and he's like, wait, give me a night to pray about it, and I'll tell you everything tomorrow. So he goes, and they sit up all night praying. Actually, they don't sit up all night praying. They sit up part of the night praying, and then they fall asleep. And they have, like Daniel has this vision, and he's able to like come back and say, hey, I know what the dream is. So we're going to dive into the second half of this text. Um, and I know, a lot of introduction, but context is everything, and I split the chapter in half. It's my fault. Then Daniel went to Arioch. Arioch is like the official who gave him permission to spend the night, he's the guy who's the king's guard, which means executioner, who is gathering everybody up to kill them, um, to have them torn to pieces, literally, and their houses turned into garbage dumps. Um, possibly their families executed too. I think that's kind of what that means. Um, then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. 
Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, I pronounced it wrong, my Akkadian is worse than my Hebrew, uh, or Aramaic, um, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Um, it's the big question for this moment in this situation, um, and I'm going to work through this, but I'm going to um, try and unpack the text in bits and pieces, just things that really apply. Um, so uh, Daniel goes, and he's like, hey, I got the dream. Don't execute the wise men. Don't execute the divinators. Don't execute the pagans. Don't execute these guys. Don't have them torn to pieces. Wait. Now, Daniel is in a unique position. Daniel is a Jew. Um, they actually executed these guys in Israel, right? Like if you were a divinator and they caught you and they were able to prove it, like they would stone you to death. Um, Daniel actually steps up and saves them, which is not a small thing. It's something to take seriously because he could have slowed his role a little bit, right? Like, whoa, let's just take our time. Or he could have said, these guys are all liars, Instead, he defended people who were his theological and ideological enemies. He doesn't endorse them, doesn't put his name on them, but he treats them in a way that is different from the way they're going to treat him later in the book and the way we're naturally inclined to treat others. Am I wrong? Like, we, we want to squish our enemies, right? Like, we want those guys to go away, um, and so first off, he defends these people. He is different, and he is an aside from the rest of the group. Um, he uses uh, – so he's used this truth to, to save these pagans. He um, um, The next thing that happens is actually that Arioch steps up to the king. He's like, hey, look what I did. Everybody with me? Did Arioch do anything? Nope. <laughs> and in fact, actually, Arioch is like, well – hey, I don't know, man, it's just kind of easier to kill you than to risk my life to not have you killed. Like, and Daniel kind of talks him out of it. And so Arioch didn't do anything, but he takes partial credit for Daniel's work. And Daniel steps up and says, hey, that Arioch guy didn't do anything, right? No. He lets the guy do what he's going to do. He doesn't push people around. He doesn't throw down the gauntlet. He doesn't demand respect or in interest or anything else. He steps up and he has this, like, all right, well, here we are. Um, again, this is not a small thing. He is in a hostile culture. He is in a place where nobody is going to like him, and he has earned respect. And he's done it over and over again by doing better than anyone else, working harder than anyone else, relying on God in everything, and treating everyone just kind of amazing. And the king calls him, asked Daniel, also called uh, this uh, Beltagazar, which means like uh, it, it's like uh, Bel is in charge, uh, which is like this pagan god. Um, I'm, that's from memory. I'm sorry if I did that wrong. Uh, but he doesn't step up and say, hey, my name's Daniel. Right? My name's Daniel. It means God will judge me. Oh, God is my judge. I get that wrong. Uh, he doesn't throw down. He lets them be who they are 
And he stands as God's man, not demanding, not offended, not, oh, you guys are jerks, you should be nicer to me, somebody go and get the king, like, you know, none of that stuff. He does what he's supposed to do, and he's appropriate about it. Not a small thing. So, we go on. Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or divinator can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. And this is true, because no one else could do it, right? No one. Absolutely no one. But... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Now, real quick, I have found a man. We're going to go back to a couple verses here. I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. There's a great opportunity for him to step up and say, hey, I can tell you. And he doesn't. What does he say? There is a God in heaven. That God is in control. That God knows everything. That God has got it all nailed down. What is amazing about Daniel 2, now watch this. Sit down one afternoon when you got nothing better to do and hop on like iTunes podcasts or whatever and hunt around for sermons on this. Daniel 2. The vast majority of commentaries and sermons about this chapter talk about the dream and about Because there's a hint that there's some end time stuff in there. Oh, I can read this and interpret it using these different things, and I can tell you what the future is. Right? Because the dream becomes the centerpiece of the story. Except it's not the centerpiece of the story. This is the centerpiece. This is the only thing you need to get out of this. Right? The main point. Only God actually the first main point on the outline I gave you. Only God can do this. Only God is capable. Only God holds the world in his hands. Why does this matter? Because only God could do it. Only God can predict the direction of nations, the shifting of powers, the history to come. Thousands of years of history, mind you. Not a little bit of history. This is a chunk of history. Um, And yet we still focus on, here's the dream. Let's have a conversation about end times. Let's write 12 really low-rent books about it. (laughs) Which, I'm sorry, did anybody else read those? The end times, what are they called? Left Behind. I love a movie with Kirk Cameron and one with Nick Cage. Um, (laughs) And they'll all be bad because they're all about something other than the fact that Only God. Because only God is all that matters in this text. It's all that matters in the scriptures. It's all that matters, period. Um, And God has shown the king. Is the king anything special? No. However, at this time, kings were worshipped as gods. Isn't that crazy? And so my God told you. Only God. This is the orientation of the whole text. This is the orientation of the whole book. Um, so, first big point: only God, only God, only God. Now uh, we're going to jump on to 28 to 30. I'm doing my best to go fast. I know I'm going slow. Still, your dream and vision that passed through your mind as you were lying in your bed are these. Um, and here's the quote: As your Majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries, who is 
God. Everybody still awake? I know it's hot in here. Um, The revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Now, some folks might take that last bit there and say, oh, well, of course he needs to understand what's going through his mind because the dream matters. No, it's because the whole dream points to the fact that God's in charge. And, and, as Daniel's talking, he stops and says, hey, this ain't me, this is God. Anybody uh, heard of a blood moon? You know what that is? Oh, anybody seen that dumb book? I said dumb on purpose. I'm not being nice. I, I can't even pretend. Um, it was written by a guy named Hagee, right? And that guy stood up and talked about how he was so intelligent, wise, and brilliant. He was able to draw these things out of the scriptures to tell us about the end of the world when there's no mention of blood moons or any other nonsense like that in the Bible. But who's God in that story? Is it God? No, it's Mr. Hagee. Because oftentimes we back up and we get lost. We lose the plot. And actually, as this story proceeds into the next chapter, we're going to see where Nebuchadnezzar builds this giant statue. um, And this giant statue is something they're supposed to worship. And most scholars kind of look at this and agree. The statue, same one in the dream. Right? Because Nebuchadnezzar made a mistake. What mattered to Nebuchadnezzar was himself. He was God. He was what mattered. And he's going to miss the point because our natural tendency as people in our sinful natures is to worship things that are not God. We lose fact that he is the world's best boss. And we assume that we're in charge. Um, And this is where the real problem is going to begin. So one of the biggest struggles, second point in my summary, right? One of the biggest struggles that we have out of our, like, it just grows out of our tendency to worship things that are not God. And mostly us. We worship politics. We worship stuff. We worship money. We worship control. We worship respect from other people. We worship, like, great yields in the farm. We worship miraculous stuff that happens as though it's God and not God is God, right? We worship, sometimes we worship the Bible, I dropped my Bible once in a uh, group at the home, and it was very early on. I was teaching this Bible study group, and I actually dropped my Bible, and somebody said, oh, my gosh, you, you dropped the Bible. What's the worst thing you could do? And I'm like, the Bible is not something I worship. I read it to know the one I do worship. Sometimes we can worship the Bible. We can worship our denominations. We can worship air conditioning. I am here to tell you as I'm figuring out how to air condition the new house, that is a thing. Right? We worship our comfort. We worship the internet. I mean, thank you, TJ. You were singing it to yourself. I know you were. Um, And so our tendency, here it is. God is God. We're not, but we worship everything else. Um, So, Daniel 2, 31 to 35. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue Awesome in appearance, which some scholars think it might have looked like Nebuchadnezzar. Just saying. That makes that kind of funny. He was a good-looking guy, right? The head of the statue was made of gold, its chest and arms 
of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. I remember reading this for the first time when I was a kid. I was maybe 15. I'd just become a believer, and I read this, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy um, because there's some great, amazing, like deeply impressive predictions about the future here. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. So whose hands could cut the rock out? Only God. The rock was cut out. Uh, Sorry, I lost it. I shouldn't have talked. Uh, Not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without, a tra- without leaving a trace, but the god that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, real quick, real quick question, because this just jumped into my head. Um, does chaff blow away without a tra- trace? Anybody drive a combine and can tell me when you're done, all that chaff is gone and there is no waste left behind? Like Craig actually has gotten money for selling bottles of chaff. Right? You walk into your house after a day of driving a piece of machinery and you do this and what happens? You have your own smoke cloud, right? It's like better than Batman. Um, or more like my kids after a few, few days of not bathing. Um, so, like, this mountain grows to the size of, like, filling the earth, but it does not grow to the size of filling the earth, taking the chaff into itself. It does not make it a part of who it is. Everybody with me? It is not a component of it. Um, that's an important distinction as we move on. Uh, there's a lot to pull out of this. I'm not going to do it all. This dream is kind of crazy, right? Nebuchadnezzar probably had this dream and assumed this is about me because everything is about him, right? This is about me, and this thing about me points to the fact that I'm going to get destroyed. Somebody is plotting against me, and I'm going to kill him. I'm going to start with those darn wise men because probably one of them is ready to kill me. Don't they know I'm the world's best boss? And they should not try to usurp me. So we move on. This is the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king, your majesty. You are the king of kings. God of heaven has given you dominion. I dropped my microphone. I think that was my chaff dust thing. So you can hear me anymore. That and the sleeping. Um, Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory in your hands. He has placed all of mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Now, real quick, what are we going to do with this? Well, starting, Nebuchadnezzar is getting buttered up, right? This looks good for him. You are the head of gold. You are awesome. Out of you, everything else comes. It's arguably one of the first world empires, right? Like, that's not a small thing. Um, So one of the first world empires, 
um, is there, and everything grows out of it. And so we have the succession of empires. All of these are empires to come. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, you rock. You're the gold one. By the way, how did Nebuchadnezzar become king? Anybody know? Because actually the text says it last week, and I've mentioned it a few times. Nebuchadnezzar became king because God made him king. Right? God made him king, and then he became an emperor because God aided him in conquering the world. The text says it. I think Daniel's going to say it in the end. Um, but uh, just be aware, like, like this is him. Uh, after you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, one ruled, excuse me, one of bronze will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly baked clay and partly iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have uh, some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. Um, And just as you saw the iron mixed and baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. So there is a lot of ink that has been spilled over this section of text, right? And especially when you get to that last one, because it's probably a future thing, right? And they're like, Oh, the Ten Kingdoms, maybe that's this, maybe that's the EU, maybe that's this other thing, maybe. And almost everybody's wrong. I just got to tell you. I, the first book I bought about this topic was written in 1990 during the first Gulf War. There were two, for those of you who are like millennials, um, during the first Gulf War. Um, and it was nonsense. It ended up being nonsense. But the same guy has printed like ten more books. Each one predicting that the end of the world will be next year. And it hasn't ended yet, to my knowledge. Although it will probably end during this sermon, and you guys will be in eternity in heaven and still feel like you're listening to me talk. Um, So, he has divided all of this up. He's talked about all these little bits and pieces and everything else. And we know, like, what the dream is, which is amazing. Um, But he goes on from there. He says, in the time of those kings, God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. All right. What is going to happen after this, right? Nebuchadnezzar's king, gold head. And then you have this silver piece, which is inferior. One of the themes that we see in the scriptures over and over and over again is decline. When you read the book of Judges, they're ordered in such a way that if you read them, the first guys were awesome. And then the last guy was Samson. And Samson, I preached about him like a whole lot a couple of years ago. Uh, you can go online and find them if you need to sleep. Um, Samson, we all think of him as this action hero who's strong and you know, did all this stuff. But he was actually kind of the worst judge because he disobeyed God constantly. He was selfish and self-centered 
and like really dishonest actually is kind of crazy. And um, in the end, he failed. He did not accomplish his mission. But everybody looked at him and said, man, he's strong. I like that guy. Um, then when Israel has a king, they start with great, uh, specifically with David, not with Saul. Uh, and from there on out, they get worse. And that's the story of everything in the world. It will always, always, always start with good intentions and end badly because we are people and we're sinful. And we will always find a God that is not the God of heaven, but it is us, right? Um, I could not get this song out of my head. And some of you guys, I actually did not know the song. I knew the quote. But all the old people in the room, not quite... The oldest people in the room, but some of the older people in the room will know where the line comes from. Meet the new boss. Really? No one? Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Uh, It's actually from a song by The Who. Everybody's seen NCIS, right? I won't get fooled again. Oh, now we know what Eric's talking about. Really? I'm the old one now? I had to look it up. Um, But this song is about revolution happening in the street and how all of these revolutionaries they would eventually take over the government they would execute all the evil people who came before right that's history is the story of this and then over the course of time they'll become the same garbage that came before them and it'll just keep happening right people will revolt and overturn and then eventually it will decline and become evil right The best intentions will always go downhill. And that's what we see in the statue, right? It starts out silver or gold, silver, bronze. So the second kingdom is the Medo-Persian Empire, by the way. They conquer the world, uh, and they basically spread out, and it's kind of awesome. And then you have bronze, which is the Greeks under Alexander the Great. The Greeks went all the way to India, which is amazing. Alexander the Great conquered the known civilized world until he got to India. He didn't want to cross the river because the, the folks in India were really nasty opponents and he didn't want to fight them. And he's like, well, this is enough, right? Um, and then his army was decimated in a desert. Um, and then he died just kind of out of the blue of nothing. Like he just up and died. Um, but they ruled the whole earth, and that was their bronze. That's that bronze era. And actually, I remember reading this as a kid and thinking, Oh, my gosh, I don't know what silver is, but I know bronze is the Greeks. And then iron comes along, and that was sure as heck the Romans, right? And the Romans were tough, and they smashed everyone. And they ruled forever. And, I mean, just forever. Um, And then finally, this clay-iron mixture at the bottom. And we have no idea what that is. Most scholars agree that is the future. Now, um... Knowing all of this, Nebuchadnezzar is equipped to do absolutely nothing. Right? What could Nebuchadnezzar do to prevent the Medo-Persian Empire from coming along? Nothing. What could Nebuchadnezzar do to keep Alexander the Great from conquering the world? Nothing. What could he do to anything? Stop the Romans. Stop this. Stop that. Nothing. Nothing. Most, I mean, like, but this is not a small thing. He predicts over a thousand years of history. That's amazing. It's so amazing that, like, there's a whole lot of Bible scholars that don't actually believe in God. I know it's a weird thing. 
they like belong to denominations and stuff, but they're not like they don't really believe. And so they'll like read this and they'll be like, oh, this is proof Daniel was not written when Daniel was written. It must have been written 100, 200, 500 years later because otherwise he wouldn't be right. And they argue like, oh, this means this, this means that. And it's like this gymnastics version of Bible interpretation in order to force the text into a version of it where you can look at it and say, oh, well, of course nothing supernatural happened because but God doesn't happen. But in the end of the day, like, this is amazing because God does something amazing. He predicts the future. And he does it in a way that, armed with that knowledge, like, nothing's going to change. Because Nebuchadnezzar, as much as he thought he was God, wasn't. As much as I might think I'm in charge, as much as I think I might be, the world's best boss. I ain't. It all falls to God. He is in charge. He has his hand on all of this. He is in charge. He is the boss. So what do we do with this? What are the big ideas here? Um, First off, Daniel is a model, okay? Daniel is a model. If you are going to follow a model of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, this is it. Um, Daniel faces an incredibly difficult situation, and he does so in a loving way. He does so in a countercultural way, right? He is respectful. He is kind. He saves his enemies. Oh, my goodness. Like, Daniel is the opposite. And then when Daniel stands up and says, this is the truth. He starts by saying, there is a God in heaven. And actually, like if you're an AA guy, you would say, and I ain't him. Thank God. There is a God in heaven, and that God can reveal these things. And that God orchestrates everything. And he points to God over and over and over again and never to himself. I, all, like all mysteries, all everything exist to glorify God. What is the purpose of this text? This text informs Nebuchadnezzar that there is a God in heaven and he knows the future. That's the only reason it happens. Nebuchadnezzar can't do anything different. He's stuck. He cannot affect the course of of a thousand years any more than he can, like, make the sun shine or not shine. He ain't a God. And the truth is that everything else we turn into a God is also not a God. Um, all of these mysteries and everything else, like there are people who will tell you, like Miss Cleo on the phone. Remember anybody old enough to remember that and used to not sleep at night and you'd watch TV late and that like really bad actress would come on and she's like, I'm Miss Cleo. And she'd pretend to be Jamaican or something. And she, I can tell you your future and it's amazing. Guess what? She couldn't. She couldn't. Only God. Only God, only God is capable. Only God can. And when miracles happen, when this dream happens, it points to him. Now, here's the crazy thing. Sometimes we are blinded to God's glory, his sovereignty, and his control, so we can't see the point. That's why there is a billion gallons of ink spilled over the meaning of this stupid statue. And all of it is trying to figure out which of the ten toes is the Republicans and which ones are the Democrats, right? Which ones are from Europe? Which ones are Italian? Which one's the Antichrist? Which one's this? Which one's that? And it's all garbage. You know why? Because the 
statue doesn't exist so you can change it. It doesn't exist so you can be writer than the other guy. And it sure as heck doesn't exist so you can write a series of bad novels about it. It exists to point to God and say, God is in charge of history. He steers the course of nations. He chooses who lives. He chooses who rises to greatness. He chooses everything because he is God. But our biases make us back up and say, what can I get out of this? How, I, how can I be smarter than the next guy? How can I know the future? At the end of the day, the one thing that you can back up and say is, God's in charge and I'm okay. That's why Daniel, when he was told, hey, we're going to cut you to pieces, he's like, let me pray about it and then I'll go to sleep. Man, if somebody was going to cut me to sleep but pieces, I guarantee you sleep is on the last of the list. Heck, I'm trying to figure out how to put up a fence today. This is a shameless plug. I have to put up a fence today. I've never done fencing. And if anybody wants to help. Anyway, um, I have to put up a fence today, and i got to write newspaper articles, and i got to do a bunch of other stuff, and I'm trying to figure out when am I going to have time to do that and fit in eight hours of TV. Like, it is just impossible. I worry because I'm not God, but I assume I am. When I look at the flowers of the field and the birds of the air, they don't sow, they don't plant, they don't work, they don't do any of that stuff. But God takes care of them better because he's God and I'm not. Even if I am the world's greatest boss, but at the end of the day, it's just a lie because only God is sovereign. But we're blinded. We cannot see. How do we fix that? What do we do with this? Like, here are my application steps for you, okay? Um, I'm going to go through these relatively quickly, so follow along. Um, When you approach anything in life, always, always, always ask first how this fits into your identity in Christ. We talked about that the very first Sunday in Daniel, right? Where we talked about Daniel, his name means only God or God is my judge, not only God can judge me. Um, God is my judge. Um, and that's true. And Daniel, I think the reason that Daniel was able to hold on and be faithful in everything is he backed up and he's like, well, God's my judge. I, 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 our, our first job in anything as followers of Jesus is to stop and ask, how does this fit? I almost, I, this is actually as I was studying this, I, I took a break at some point. And I jumped on Twitter, and I was scrolling, and I came across some people I'm good friends with arguing about something political that I have a very strong opinion about. And I'm right, because I'm the world's best boss. Um, And I really wanted to jump in, but then I stopped, and I said, is alienating people who actually listen to me talk about the scriptures worth being right right now? It's not. Only Jesus matters. Politics are going to not matter in 10 years. I've actually reached the point where I'm old enough that I remember nobody cares about politics from 40 years ago unless they can make a buck off it or be God in the process. I don't know. Um, so back to said, I can't do that. I'm, my identity in Christ matters. Oh, my gosh, that guy called Daniel by his pagan name, not by his real name. Daniel didn't throw down. You know why? doesn't matter. doesn't. Call him whatever you want. It doesn't change him. You can call me whatever name you want. Eric is boring. Eric talks too much. Eric tried to go shorter, and he's still long. doesn't matter. I, I belong to Jesus. My job is to talk about Jesus. That's all that matters. 
And so the first question we ask, does this fit with my identity in Christ? Is this who I am in Christ? Does this fit with how I'm behaving? Does this, that, the other? Because all that matters is who I am in Christ. Don't jump to conclusions about people. It is very easy to look at people and say, oh my gosh, this guy's on my team. Nebuchadnezzar hears this, and the very next thing he does is he falls down and he worships Daniel. And a lot of people might have been in that situation and said, Nebuchadnezzar's on my side. He probably just figured out who God is. I bet he's a Christian. We say that about every leader and ruler, don't we? And only the other team's leaders and rulers aren't. That's what I've learned. It's nonsense. Because none of them are. Unless their fruit shows it. And a lot of times our own biases prevent us from seeing that truth. We can easily look at people and say, that guy's on my team, he's good. At the end of the day, if he's not glorifying Christ, if he is not acting in harmony, if he's not loving his enemies, if he's not speaking in a way to spread the gospel, he ain't on my team. I have to love him. I've got to treat him right. But um, we judge things by their fruit. Um, we don't call people. Oh. All right. And we need to focus on him every day. We have to have the proper glasses on. I swear I grabbed the wrong glasses when I walked up here. I try to use farther out glasses when I'm reading this far away, and it makes it a little easier to read at a distance. But we need new glasses. Um, if we can't see things properly, we will not know. And a lot of people wander around in life. A lot of believers wander around in life with their eyes closed saying, this is probably Christian. Oh, this makes me happy. It's probably Christian. Oh, this is fun. It's probably Christian. Oh, I don't like that. I don't believe God would do that. I had a conversation with someone a while ago who said, I don't believe God would ever drown anyone. So I think that that part of the Bible where Noah builds an ark and people drown, that's not real. Somebody made that up and added it later. Not real. Because who's God in that story? I am. I decide what God does. I decide what's true. I decide what's right. How do we change our glasses out so that we look at the world through, through Christ-colored glasses and not through selfish-colored glasses or worldly glasses or, or, or you know, crap-covered glasses or whatever? How do we change them? We start by praying. Like, this is how Daniel became the man he was. He invested in his identity, and he did it through prayer. He talked to God. He engaged with God. He listened to God. He worshiped God in prayer. Everything. You read that guy's prayers, they're amazing. They're amazing because he did it a lot, and he had the right glasses on, ultimately. We read and study the scripture. How many of you guys have heard a political thing or heard something happen in the news and then immediately jumped on Google to see how you should probably approach this? Or turned on the radio or turned on the news and said, all right, what does my guy say about this so I know how to respond? How many of us go to the scriptures first? Discipleship. We grow by being trained. Is there somebody in your life you call who is a foundational believer, a follower of Christ, holy throughout, who will tell you you're wrong? If there isn't, then you're not doing this. Right? I appreciate the people in my life who tell me, Eric, you're screwing up. We do it through fellowship. We spend time with each other. Um, there's an interesting statistic. If you hang out with thin people, you are more likely to be. Isn't that weird? If you hang out with people who read books, you're more likely to read books. Weird. 
I, I never think, oh, I need to figure out my finances. Let me go talk to a homeless guy. Right? Like, we don't do that. We spend time with people who have their stuff together, and it changes us. I, uh, years ago, I found a song I really liked. It was a popular song. I'm not going to say what it is because it's really embarrassing. And I picked up the album from the particular artist, and I listened to it for a while, and I found that, like, every song was about sex. And I began to think about that a lot, and it was, like, really just not a good thing for me. And at the end of the day, if I fill my head and my heart up with something and associate with it enough, I will become that. Worked in a steel mill for a while. Everybody worked in the steel mill swore like sailors, steel-driving sailors. And guess what happened by the end of the summer I worked there? Man, I developed a new vocabulary. I spoke in tongues. It was amazing. It wasn't the tongue of angels. It was the tongue of men. But like, whatever. So we fellowship. We spend time. And finally, we continually feed on truth. And we feed on godly sources of information and wisdom to do that. Like, we have to fill ourselves up with it. If 90% of what I do is watch, you know, some guy on TV tell me about how the other side is bad, or if 90% of what I do is... um, you know, it is garbage. I'm going to be filled with garbage. Feeding on the truth involves finding people who are wise, finding people who are intelligent, maybe coming to the deep dive and asking questions, maybe whatever. Like feeding on the truth um, is how we grow. It's how our identity becomes what it is. This is a communion Sunday, and I am long anyway, and I apologize. I don't apologize. I am not sorry. Um, we are going to... How does this fit with what we're talking about? Well, the reality is my identity in Christ is who I am. It's all that I am. When I feed on truth, I feed on Jesus. That's it. I, I might try to play games with it. I might try to do other things. But like real truth, real wisdom, real identity is something I consume and fill myself with. And so if you're sitting here today, if you know Jesus, if you're one of his people, if you look at the dream and the first thing you say is, God is amazing. Or if you listen to me talk and you're still awake and you're like, oh, wow, I always looked at this wrong. Like, God is amazing. If you look to Christ, then this is what we're doing this morning. Come on up. Take the bread. Take the cup. Know that Christ poured out his blood. Christ, his flesh was broken on our behalf because God is in charge, because God steers history, and because God saves us through the blood of his son. He took punishment for our sins. He knew us before we were born. And we come back over and over and over again and ask for forgiveness because we're going to screw up because we're inclined to think we're God. And so as we uh, do this... um, I'm going to have Jeremy Eccles. Is he still here or did he leave? Oh, no. I'm going to have, uh, who am I going to have do this? I'm going to have Larry let people go in rows and come on up and take communion. And my challenge for you today is to ask yourself, what am I full of? And then to fill yourself with Christ. Christ's body broken for you. No, 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 take, take the cup. Here. Sorry, I wasn't clear about that.